you our worship this and you go to the Lord in prayer this morning. You can pray with you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, nothing compares to who you are. You are our King. You are our great God. You are seated on the throne and you rule over all things. You are sovereign over all creation. Lord, we thank you and praise you this morning for all that you are to us in being our God. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. You sent him for us as he laid down his life that we might be saved, dying for us. Being raised to life from the dead, ever to reign and ever to intercede on our behalf. Oh God, you are so incredibly good to us, so full of grace and mercy toward even us. And so Lord, as we gather this morning, we long that you would inhabit our praise, as your word says. And Lord, we're mindful of those who are unable to be with us today, those who are traveling, those who are ill, even those who are watching online, Lord, we just ask your care for each one and bring them back to us soon. Lord, as we look at our world, the world is full of chaos and turmoil, conflict. We see it globally. We sadly see it domestically in households across our country, especially at this time of year. But sometimes nerves are laid bare. Conflict ensues. Poor choices are made. Lord, we pray for healing in our land, in our lives. We long for your presence. We long for your touch, for your encouragement. And Lord, for those who are gathering here this morning, carrying burdens, Lord, we thank you that we can lay everything at your feet and leave everything to you. Thank you, praising you, knowing that you know it all full well, all that we're wrestling with, all that we're longing for. God, help us to just trust you with those things, even right now. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for gathering us this morning. We thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that you came that we can celebrate and praise you. And Lord, we come to adore you as you just sung. But not just in words or in thoughts, but with our hearts. Turn towards you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence here with us, even this morning. We give this service completely to you in all things. We pray this for your son's wonderful, awesome name this morning. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How's it going to be today? Good, good. Uh, it's awesome to be back. I've been talking for like a month. So, welcome back. Good to be back. So, uh, if you are visiting with us today, uh, I would encourage you to fill out one of those visitors cards in the pew rack in front of you, and after the service, go ahead and drop it off at the offering plate um, in between the doors out in the hall. Uh, reminder, next Sunday, January 2nd, we will only be having an 11 o'clock service, just like today. Um, there will be no adult or children's Sunday school. Starting on January 9th, we will return to our one service format. Uh, with a regular Sunday school hour starting at 9.30. So it's going to be like today, but with Sunday school at 9.30. Um, it's going to be for all ages, followed by our coffee fellowship at 10.30, and we'll all worship together with one service at 11 o'clock here. Uh, we will be having a baptism service on Sunday, January 16th. Uh, if God's meeting to publicly acknowledge your um, following with him, um, 
please fill out one of those community cards. Again, if you read in front of you and drop it off, uh, we'd love to be in contact with you and get that going. Um, just a reminder, there's still time to make an end-of-year donation to our general ministry fund, either today in person, using the box, or in the foyer, or online, this week on our website. Um, remember that if you choose to give to our missions program, you need to designate, specifically designate missions under envelope. And as always, we're so thankful for the generosity uh, of our church family and supporting all our ministries here. Uh, another reminder, uh, tonight, Bruden is having our Christmas party at 5 o'clock, so uh, all of you young youths, we'd love to see you. It'll be fun. And then next week is our overnight for New Year's Eve, so that'll be fun too. All right, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for uh, just allowing us to come together today and, and worship you, um, remembering the gift that you gave with yourself uh, as a baby here to take on our sins for us, Lord. We're so grateful, um, and, and Lord, I just pray that you give us all an open heart and open mind this morning, and I pray that all the worship that we're giving is pleasing to you, Lord, and I just sing in your son's name. Amen. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Well, the first time that John the Baptist laid eyes on Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we hear this sentiment before, we need to remember that these words are not just a pithy saying or some hopeful embellishment by Jesus' renowned second cousin, John the Baptist, some 2,000 years ago. These words are, in fact, precisely accurate and fantastically true. Of course, upon hearing John's proclamation, it's easy for us to consider that surely these words are important and perhaps true for the rest of the world, but not necessarily for ourselves. It's easy for us to imagine, sure, Jesus takes away the sins of the world, but me, yeah, I'm not all that bad. As one songwriter put it, well, at least I'm not as bad as you. The reality is we are all equally bad in the eyes of the Lord. All of us have a problem, and that problem is sin. The words of John the Baptist are not just for the rest of the world. They are meant for us. They are meant for you and for me. We are the ones who are beset with sin. We are the ones who have missed the mark. We are the ones who are in need of cleansing and redemption. And the good news is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he also takes away your sin and my sin. He takes away the idolatry of our loving people and things more than we love him. He takes away the blasphemy of our saying we belong to him and then living otherwise. He takes away our disrespect for those who have gone before us. He takes away our hatred, our hatred, our unforgiveness of others, our inappropriate desires and actions. He takes away our treachery, our contempt, our jealousy, our bitterness, and our falsehood. All that and a lot more he removes from us. In fact, as we'll see today, he is the suffering servant who exercised wisdom, who was high and lifted up, and who was highly exalted. He is the King of Kings, who is disfigured for us, who sanctifies and cleanses the nations, and who brings the rulers of this world to shame. He is the Son of Man, who is like us in every way, knowing that our frailties and our pain. He is indeed the Lamb of God, who bore our grief and sorrow, who paid our penalty, who died in our place who satisfies God's just wrath completely, and who always intercedes for us. This message isn't just for the world. It's for you, and it's for me. Behold, the Lamb of God. We're talking about Isaiah's Messiah in the series of Christmas here. Today, behold, the Lamb of God. In the book of Isaiah, we see the ongoing proclamation of the great prophet's warnings and judgments against the nation of Israel for ongoing rebellion against God. This passage is known as the last of four servant songs, which clearly describes the coming Messiah. Here we are told that there is someone coming who will fulfill all that God requires and all that Israel longs for through victoriously suffering for the sins of God's people. He is the righteous promised one who will appease the just wrath of God against Israel's sin and rebellion once and for all. This morning we'll see four truths from this passage about the coming Messiah. Again, they were looking for him in the future and now we look to him in the past. Before we study, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible passage and for so much for us to take in here. Lord, we just ask that you would help us not to miss anything that you might have for us today. Something that might touch our hearts, something that might make a difference. Not only for today, or this next week, but for our lives. So Lord, be your God, be your teacher. Open your word to us by the power of your spirit. And open our hearts and our minds to receive it from you. 
We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name this morning. Amen. You have your servant notes outlined. Here's the first truth of four. He is the suffering servant. That's what we're told. I'd like to remind you that in Mark's gospel, Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself, or even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the suffering servant. servant. First of all here, he's the suffering servant who exercised wisdom. That's what the text says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, says in Isaiah. It's well known that Jesus was very prudent and acted wisely at all times throughout his earthly ministry. Multitudes came to him for guidance, assurance, and wisdom. Even the religious leaders of the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, came to check him out. And over and over again, they were amazed at his teaching. At the end of the Sword of the Mount, in Matthew 7, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was one teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He taught with conviction, passion, and authority. In comparison, none of us are all that wise. None of us are all that sharp. But the Apostle Paul reminds us about this Jesus in Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He exercised wisdom. He is the suffering servant. Not only did he exercise wisdom, but he was high and lifted up. He's the suffering servant who is high and lifted up. That's what the text says. He shall be high and lifted up. Now this took place in the life of Christ, both figuratively and literally. While his disciples highly esteemed him, he was lifted up on the cross for our sin. Jesus teaches of himself in John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He is the suffering servant who is high and lifted up on the cross for us. But not only that, he's the suffering servant who is highly exalted. It says in our text, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Peter, in his message in the streets of Jerusalem, proclaimed God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. This is who we're dealing with, this Jesus. He's high and lifted up, he's exalted, he's all wise. He is the suffering servant. Our problem is we generally don't prefer to serve others. We don't like to serve, of course, unless there's something in it for us. We certainly don't want to suffer to be being inconvenienced in some way. But Jesus was the perfect example of servanthood and of suffering. You recall before he went to the cross, one evening he washed all the disciples' feet, right? Which is amazing. I'd like to remind you that as he washes their feet, he's not washing their feet so he can get his own feet washed. That's how we operate a lot of times. Well, I'll do something nice for you, but you better be doing something nice for me. But that's not how Jesus works. He's happy to suffer loss for others despite what comes his way. He's willing to suffer as he serves. This is the suffering servant who is Christ. But not only is he the suffering servant, he is precisely the king of kings. Remind you of Revelation 17, 14, where we read John, John's writing here, they will make war on the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. That's who he is by his very nature. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. He is the king of kings, first of all, here, who was disfigured for us. You see this in verse 14? Mind you, this was written 750 years before it actually happened. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, the text says. He had human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Before even his crucifixion, he had already been beaten. He had been up all night, beaten, 
pummeled. His back had been lashed. He took blows to his face. His head was crowned with thorns. Most scholars agree that after the Roman authorities were, had their way with Jesus, he was unrecognizable. That was even before he went to the cross. But not only that, he is the king of kings who sacrifices and cleanses the nations. Even though his appearance was so marred beyond the human summons, verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. By the way, the nations who need sprinkling, do they not? Many dirty nations need cleansing, sprinkling. Can you think of any righteous nations out there? Any righteous leaders? I think you'll end up with empty stuff on that one. Again, they are few and far between. The whole world needs a giant scrubby brush, does it not? And the whole world needs cleansing. He is the king of kings who sacrifices and cleanses the nations. But not only that, he is the king of kings who brings the rulers of this world to shame. Notice what it says in verse 15, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, and they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. There's coming a point that Jesus has revealed that everybody's going to have to deal with it. The text said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is the King. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, it says in verse 1. Who is believer? He has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, who is it? That's to us. He's been revealed to us. This is the power of God in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate authority as he reveals himself to even us. He has the ultimate power over all things. Whether it's President Biden or Queen Elizabeth or Vladimir Putin or Nancy Pelosi, they are all nothing before him. He puts all of them to shame. Now, have you ever been in the presence of someone that all of a sudden, man, you were just silent? You know, you just couldn't speak because you were just so overwhelmed. I mean, think about it. Are there that many people in your experience that you even, you know, that would be a, a possibility for you? I mean, for me, that's really just being with my wife, Kathy. I'm speechless, right? Right? But really, there's nobody like this that we run into. That we're, we're that awestruck of anybody. We're so full of contempt for everyone in our day and age. That's what's going on. But here, here's Jesus who silences kings. He shuts their mouths. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But not only that, thirdly today, he is the son of man. And now we're going to talk about his humanity here and how important this is. The son of man, that's a messianic title. You hear this really first introduced in the passages like Daniel 7, 13, where Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came in the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. See, this is the idea that he is the King of Kings, and yet he is the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is the Son of Man, first of all, here, who is like us in every way. Notice what it says in verse 2 of 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This Jesus was born in this world, right? We just celebrated that yesterday. In Luke 2, 52, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. He's like us. We were born in this world. We grew up just like he did. Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As a man, he is like us in every way, yet without sin. He is the Son of Man who is like us in every way. And secondly here, He's the Son of Man who knows our frailties. He knows your frailties. It says, He had no form of majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. Again, He was born in this world, just like us. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
And of course, he was born just like us. And in the lowliest state, Luke 2 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is who this guy is. He's poor. He's broke. Philippians 2 5, we read this. Paul says, Have this might among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God and not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's that servant thing, born like us. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. The point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus who's like us in every way, who knows our frailties. He knows your frailties. He knows what it's like to breathe. He knows what it's like to eat and to sleep, to bleed and to die. He is the Son of Man who knows all of our frailties. But not only that, He's the Son of Man who knows our pain. He knows our pain. He knows your pain. How does he know? Verse 3. That he was despised. He knew rejection. You ever been rejected? Do you identify with that? I am. He knew hatred. He knew sorrow and grief. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew hatred, he knew rejection, he knew sorrow and grief. And he also knew betrayal and indifference, did he not? And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He knows our pain. You know, oftentimes as a pastor, people come to my office and they share their story with me and they, they're trying to help me understand what they've been through. And sometimes they'll say things like, well, you have no idea what I've been through. And you know what? I have to readily agree. I have to say, you know, you're right. I have no idea what you've been through. But I do know someone who does. And that's Jesus. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows what you're dealing with. And maybe you feel hated. Maybe you feel rejected. Maybe you are a person that's encountering great sorrow and grief right now. He knows this kind of pain. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. And he knows what it's like to face indifference where people look at him and turn away. And go their own way. He knows our pain intimately. He knows your sorrow, your grief. A man of sorrows, it says. And not only is he the Son of Man, the King of Kings, and the suffering servant, but lastly this morning, he is, in fact, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. It was John who said in John 129, when he first saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an incredible epitaph to put on Christ. It's who he is. He is the Lamb of God, first of all, here, who bore our grief and sorrow. Verse 4 of our text says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Oh, praise God for that. I don't know what you're carrying today, but He wants to carry it for you. All of it. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Whatever you're carrying today, He's carrying it, and He's carrying it even right now. He is the Lamb of God who bore our grief, your grief, my grief, and my sorrow, your sorrow. But now that, he's the one who's paid our penalty. The Lamb of God who paid our penalty. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's right. We're, we're all wandering around out there. And we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything, every raw piece of rebellion that we've done has been put on him. This is incredibly remarkable and significant. This is indeed the good news. This is precisely the gospel message. Pierced through for our transgressions, the text says. 
That is, our rebellion against God's law, these transgressions, that's our rebellion against his law, that's sin, trespasses, iniquity, pierced through. You understand how remarkable it is that in this text, in Isaiah, at this moment when it says he was pierced through for our transgressions, you understand how crazy awesome that is? Why? See, if you're a good Jew and you want to you do another Jew in, you want to gather the community and deal with somebody who you don't like, what do you do? You gather around and you grab a what? You grab a rock and you stone them. That's what the Jews did to people. But you understand, it's the Romans who brought in this idea of crucifixion, this idea of piercing somebody. Oh, incredibly prophetic. God had to basically change government regimes out to bring the Romans in for this to be fulfilled because of writing, Rome wasn't around so much. And when Jesus shows up, the Romans are there, and he is precisely pierced through for our transgressions. I want to show you another passage with this, in concert with this. Take a look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Because you might say, well, that was kind of a lucky shot with this particular prophet in terms of nailing that. Yeah, well, it shows up other places too. Look at Psalm 22. It won't be on the screen, so you have to actually look at the Bible and you want to see it. Otherwise, you can hear it. But listen to this. Listen to how accurate the description is about Jesus. Now, mind you, Isaiah wrote 750-some years ago, right? David about 1,000 years. Oh. Notice as we read Psalm 22, 1,000 years before Jesus shows up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, where do we hear that? From the cross, Jesus himself crying out. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer in my night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. I love the hope even within that statement. You know, I had a rough time here, but you're awesome. You're still God. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isn't that exactly what happened to Jesus? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He just described the phenomenon of being crucified. The dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. There it is. How precise and after that is a thousand years before it happened. You can count all my bones, they stare and blow over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing, they cast lots. Isn't that what the garments did? They cast lots for his clothing. But you, O Lord, not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Over and over again, pointing to the reality of who God is and what he's accomplished through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant, who is the king of kings, who is the son of man, and ultimately the very lamb of God who is pierced through for our transgressions. Beloved, all of us need healing this morning. All of us are plagued with the cancer of sin. All of us are full of disease, and the pus of our infection is made manifest in our rebellion and perversity against God, who is holy, holy, holy. 
And the biggest disease we have is sin, and the only cure, the only antidote, the only inoculation is Jesus. He's the only cure. We all need this healing from him. He, in fact, has taken our beating so that we may be healed. He was punished so that we might find peace for our souls. Maybe you might be thinking this morning, I'm not as bad as all that. I don't need someone to stand in my place. And I say, oh, yes, you do. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die. Well, I'm not so depraved and perverse. I know other people who are, but not me. The reality is no one is immune to the disease of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But Solomon says, Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all is sin falls short of the glory of God. Beloved, he is the Lamb of God who bore our grief and sorrow, who paid our penalty, and thirdly, he is the one who died in our place. It says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted in our text. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. This is precisely what happened to Jesus on our behalf. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. At least seven times Pilate tries to get out of sending Jesus to his death. Seven times he tries to get out of it. Saying over and over again, I, I find no fault in him. He's the perfect lamb without blemish who died for us. He opened not his mouth. As one theologian put it, whereas a common criminal complains and argues his case all the way to the gallows, Jesus offers no complaints, no plea, no argument. He is fully resolved and fully resigned to God's will in the matter. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's pretty violent. And Mel Gibson, I don't know, I'm not a super Mel Gibson fan by any stretch, but there's a moment in the movie depicting the crucifixion of Christ. As the thieves are being laid out on their crosses next to Jesus, they're all fighting and struggling. But Jim Caviezel, playing Jesus Christ in the movie, when they lay it on the cross, he kind of scooches over to get into the middle of it. Oh man, that's it. Again, I wasn't there at the cross when Jesus actually did this, and of course Jim Caviezel wasn't either, just playing the part. But I think that's the right idea. Jesus isn't trying to get out of this. He wants to center himself in the middle of it for us, for you, for me, as he takes our place in death. He is our propitiation. Well, there's a 50 cent theological word right there. Jesus was our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He died precisely in our place. He died the death that we should have died for all of our sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He was the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us to be received by faith. We receive his sacrifice through believing on him. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. First John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, which is amazing. First John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, what? To be the propitiation for our sins. Of course, verse 9, this is fulfilled. He says that he was the... Some wicked men in his death, and his thieves on each side, and of course a rich man showed up, Joseph of Arimathea. And so with this, he dies in our place. And so doing for the here, he is the one who satisfied God's just wrath. Don't miss this. 
In verse 10, we read in Isaiah, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. There's the idea that he's going to come back to life from the grave. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish, don't miss this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. God will see the sacrifice, this atonement, and be satisfied. He will be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is such incredible, phenomenal theology. Justification. This satisfaction which makes us righteous because Jesus died for us. For all of us, including God, there is a great pleasure in justice being served. We all know what good justice looks like. So if there's this kid across the state who goes into school and shoots it up and kills four of his fellow students. We've got videotape, he's guilty. And we expect that this young man will stand before the judge, and the judge, he, here's, here's what the judge is, he's not here to do this. Oh, it's okay, you're free to go. He's not here to get wink, wink, it's okay. You know, well, I made a mistake, off you go. Because we're like, wait a minute, get a new judge, get this guy off the bench. We know what justice is, that wouldn't be justice, would it? We know what justice looks like. And we anticipate, we expect it similarly. As we have all our sins stand before a holy and righteous Almighty God, who is the judge. He's got his gavel in hand. He wants to bring it down. He has every right to. He's already done. And yet, what happens is in the midst of this court proceeding, our own very lives on the line. God in the person of Jesus Christ, while yet being on the bench, steps down from the bench for a moment and comes up to me, and he puts his arm around me and looks at the judge and says, I have paid this month's penalty. I paid for it. God the Father brings the gavel down, case closed, you are dismissed. Now, you know, Ron, you're sitting right there. Ron, you're a really nice guy, and you know, you know, I've done a lot of dumb things. Maybe, Ron, you'd be willing to die for me and take my place. Would you die for me, Ron? Could, could you, would that, would that satisfy God's judgment, his justice? No, probably not. Why? Because, Ron, you're a great guy, but you've got stuff to pay for too. We need somebody who doesn't have a debt. We need Jesus. We live a perfect life, we live on his life for us once and for all. You guys, this is the gospel. It was presented 750 years before Jesus ever showed up, which is amazing. He is the Lamb of God who satisfies God's just wrath. Some would say, you know, what are we saved from? From sin, from hell? Yeah, that's true. But ultimately, we're saved from God's wrath against us that we so deserve because of our rebellion. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You can't be good enough, long enough to make that work for you before Almighty, all holy God. I know I can't. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We need Jesus. Lastly, he is the one who ever intercedes for us. In verse 12, this text, this portion of this text concludes, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what Jesus has done for us. Romans 8, 34, who is, to, who is to condemn us? Now there's no one to condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Praise God for that. He can save you no matter what you've done, no matter how horrible, how awful. He can save you to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is precisely who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplished. Beloved, this passage is not just for the world. It's for you and for me. You know, a lot of times we'll read the Bible, like you read the account of the prodigal son, right? And we, we think, oh yeah, that guy, he went out and squandered his inheritance, right, with loose living. That's what the text says. We go, yeah, I know someone like that. That's someone else's problem. No, it's us. We're the prodigal, right? We need to make sure we're reading this for ourselves to understand what's at stake for our own salvation. Perhaps we might need to make Isaiah 53 a little more personal. Let's hear it this way for a moment. Surely he has borne Brad's griefs and carried Tim's sorrows. Yet Rachel esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for Jill's transgressions. He was crushed for Dave's iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought melody peace, and with his wounds the sky is healed. Like sheep, Nick has gone astray. Well, I'm sorry, Nick. <laughs> Travis has turned his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of your tongue. Maybe this needs to be a little more personal. In light of who he is and what he's done for us, it is fantastic news that he is precisely our suffering servant. He is the King of Kings, the Son of Man, the very Lamb of God who bore our grief and sorrow, who paid our penalty, who died in our place, who satisfies God's just wrath, and even now is interceding on your behalf. So what should we do now? Better than giving your life to Him. Maybe there's someone in the room here, you've celebrated many Christmases and you've never given your life to Him. Perhaps this morning you're understanding how desperately you need Him. And that you can bring all of your griefs, all your sorrows, and lay them down before Him. You can bring all your sin, all your rebellion, and lay it on Him. He bore it all for us. Put all your hope and trust in him. He's precisely what all of us in this room need. Maybe for Christmas you had a list, you had a list of all the things that you wanted to get for Christmas, and you gave those to your, your family members, and hopefully they're the true the things that you were asking for. But there's not anything more important, more pressing than your need for Jesus right now. For all of us in this room. Would you please stand and Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible power of your word. This incredible passage from Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus came. Of course, Psalm 22, another incredible passage, a thousand years before Jesus arrives. Just marvel at the fact that the New Testament leaders, uh, those who were in the streets proclaiming the gospel, didn't even need the New Testament. They had the Old Testament here. These passages proclaiming Christ to the lost world. The Lord, it's my prayer this morning that there's someone who doesn't know you, that even right now they would seek your face, that you open their eyes, having finally heard, finally seen. You open their ears to receive these things, not from you, the speaker, but from you, of what you have to say. Powerful prophecy about the coming Christ. And those in olden times looked in the future for your coming, and now we look to the past and marvel over who you are and what you've done for us. You are indeed the suffering servant. You suffered for us. You came to serve. 
that we might learn to serve as well. You are the King of Kings. We praise your name and we find ourselves bending our knee before you, submitting ourselves to you fully in that you are the King. There is no other. And only that you are the Son of Man, like us in every way, knowing all our frailties, our griefs, and sorrows. Oh God, thank you that we can come to you and that you are the wonderful counselor with all of our issues, our concerns, and you're so ready to help us. Lord, if there's someone here this morning carrying a burden they need help with, they need a wonderful counselor in you, or maybe seek your faith, seek your word, comfort them, care for them, help them, even right now. Lord, most of all, we thank you that he is the Lamb of God. He lived without blemish or stain, the perfect sacrifice, as he laid down his life that we might find ours, that we might live, knowing full well that he intercedes for us even right now. Thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation that's found only in you. Lord, help us to carry these things with us in the days and the weeks to come, especially as we come into a new year. And we take the gospel, the good news with us and share it with the dark and lost world. That we might bring hope to people. Hope of salvation. Hope of eternal life forevermore with you. And even hope for an abundant life right here, right now. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for attending to us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. We want to give you all the praise in your revelation to us. We pray this for your son, wonderful and awesome name this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, and hopefully you have a fun, fantastic Christmas.